So today is an Ask Anything Sunday. We do this about once every 18 to 24 months where we say, let's just talk about what the Bible says in terms of a particular topic. And so we want to do that today about the afterlife. And when you see this rope over, we've been talking about this, and we said, we live not just for the dot, the little red part there, we live for the line. And so that what we, our existence here on earth is just such a small sliver of our complete existence. And so it's really appropriate that we talk about heaven and hell and and what we can look forward to. So really glad to have those of you joining us from Olmstead Falls. Thank you for being with us. We prioritized any of your questions that came in and so in advance, and so we're gonna be answering some of those. And also glad to have with me uh, two people up here that I really, um, I really admire and respect. Pastor Josiah is our pastor of young adults at both campuses. He is happily married to Sarah. He has a bachelor's degree in biblical and theological studies from Crown College up in Minnesota. And uh, he and Sarah have three children, Josiah, um, Jovi Lynn, and June. And he and our uh, pastor for Grace Kids, uh, what was that? It was close. Silas, not, <laughs> not close. yeah. You are Josiah. He has a son, Silas, I didn't yes. I Josiah and, Jr. thing. Right. And then uh, he and Michael do a podcast, uh, how, was, how Was School. Great podcast, by the way. If you have kids who are in school, I want to encourage you to take a listen to that. And then Mary, my best friend and partner in life. Uh, They're going to say partner in crime. Partner in crime. Sometimes <laughs> that as well, right? Mary also has a bachelor's degree in biblical studies from Columbia International University, where we met and uh, she loves to teach the Bible. She has a minor in Bible teaching, and uh, we together, we love the, the, being able to parent, and this summer, I don't know if I've said this yet, we're gonna become grandparents. And so uh, our daughter Lauren and Brad, who maybe are watching today, are uh, expecting in July, and so uh, welcome to them as well. One thing I'll just say before we, I'm gonna ask the first question to Josiah here. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and, and by the way, all of the questions, we wanna come back to the scriptures. I can't recommend highly enough a study Bible that helps out, but there's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, that I think just says so well uh, what we feel today and what anybody who really studies the Bible feels, and it says this, that now we see things imperfectly. This is 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. So today, we see things with a bit of, like, as best we can tell, but then it says we will see things with perfect clarity. I can't wait for that day. So we'll do our best to answer questions, but there's some things the Bible doesn't tell us, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, do what we can, okay? So first of all, Josiah, for you, one came in here. It says this, are we at rest when we go to heaven until the judgment day, or are we awake? I ask in the context of the verse, were the sleeping saints awake to ask how long they must wait to be avenged uh, from the book of Revelation, and they are told to rest a while longer as the day is near? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I've, I thought it was interesting how often a, this question came up in the ones that we received beforehand. Uh, a similar question to this came up several times, so... Um, and I had to do some research myself. <laughs> so it's referring to Revelation 6, 9 through 11, um, that says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, 
holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So a very interesting passage and a very interesting book, um, but it does show us that there's this um, state between the death of a believer and when we receive our resurrected bodies at final judgment, there's an intermediate state. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it looks like, but there's a few things that we can learn from it. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 calls it sleeping, uh, those who are asleep. But then we also see glimpses of a a couple things that we know for sure. One thing we know for sure is that when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. So that's, that intermediate state is with the Lord. We are um, in what, whatever that means, we are with the Lord. And also, um, it, we, we see that in a couple places. Um, also, when Jesus is on the cross, he tells the person next to him who puts his faith in him, today you will be with me in paradise. So with the Lord um, is really clear in scripture. And the other thing that seems to be clear, at least to me, um, is that it's a conscious state. So even though um, it's calling it sleeping in 1 Thessalonians, there is some consciousness that we see. In Hebrews 12, we see the great cloud of witnesses who are um, watch, or her cheering on the saints. Uh, that seems to be a conscious thing. And then what we just read in Revelation was this conscious awareness that um, the full final judgment isn't here yet, and there's this longing for that. Um, so are we at rest? Yes, because we're in the presence of the Lord. Are we sleeping like we would sleep on earth? I don't think so. I think there's this consciousness. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sleep is often used as really a metaphor for death, right? Mm-hmm. That even it says with communion that some of you have taken it inappropriately and they've fallen asleep. It doesn't mean that they've just, they're in bed. It means that they've actually physically died. And it might point to how glorious this resurrected body is that when we're sleeping and we wake up to the new morning, um, if we're in this, this intermediate state, we will wake up to this resurrected body someday. So that's, it's how glorious this transformation is gonna be. It's gonna be amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mary, question for you. A couple of weeks ago, it says Pastor John. Josiah did such a great job with that question. Let's just give all of them to Let's him. Let's give all to him, yeah, that okay, good, great. Josiah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, here it says, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan said that when we go to heaven, none of us become God's angels. Who then make up his angels? Okay, well, you're the one who said it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know that's, that's what a lot of people think, right? You know, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna go to heaven, I'm gonna get my wings. Um, this question came in a little bit ago, so I had a chance to look, Job 38, Um, which is a book right before Psalms, uh, verses four and seven, talks about angels. And here's what it says, Job 38, verse four. God's talking to Job, and he says, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth, where were you? And then if you skip down to verse seven, uh, it talks about that all the angels, when God laid the foundations of the earth, all the angels shouted for joy. So that's indicative to us that angels were there before God even created the world. So, of course, then before he created us as humans. So angels existed before humans did. Then if you flip over to Psalm 148, um, in verse 2, it talks about the angels praising God. And then in verse five, it talks about every created thing giving praise to the Lord. So, so that would indicate to us that the angels were created by God. 
And then if you look in Revelation 5, there's a passage there, it's just an amazing worship service. And it talks about two distinct groups of people, humans from every tribe, nation, tongue, and then angels, so two distinct groups. So I, I think the weight of scripture would point towards angels being separate created beings than humans. Great. I'm gonna just stay on the topic of Job because you referred to Job and the angels and a person here asks, why do you think God directed the attention of the devil to Job? I don't understand why he would subject him to so much. Um, Josiah, there's one from John chapter 20 if you wanna be thinking about that. Jesus appears to his disciples and his wounds are evident, but you, if you wanna be thinking about that one next. But the one about Job, why would God allow that kind of suffering to Job? I think, you know, this is a, there are a number of you today who are suffering in big ways. I got an email early this morning from a former pastor at Grace, Terry Truffin, and maybe, Terry, you're watching uh, this morning. Terry lives in Florida, said they've been tuning in to services. But Terry was a pastor here in the late 1980s, and just a great couple. They were here for a number of years, and then he went on and became a senior pastor elsewhere. But earlier this week, uh, his wife, Judy, passed away uh, due to complications from COVID. And, and Terry wrote me this morning, and he said, it's like half of me is gone. Like, how do, you, how do you go on? And he knows that Jesus' grace is sufficient, but there are a lot of you who are suffering today. You might say it's not quite to the level of Job, but but it doesn't really matter if our pain is as great as someone else, our pain is real. So how do we respond to that? Two things I would say. One, we don't always understand the pain that we go through. We don't always know this side of heaven why. But one thing I can come back to is to say, what I remember in communion, when I come back to the elements of the bread and the cup, that I can say, Am I willing to trust the person who would give his life for me? If he was willing to suffer a death he didn't deserve and to take all of my sin on his shoulders and to be, have the Father himself turn his face away, am I willing to trust him with my unanswered questions to say, I love him that much? Some of you have had... Uh, a child, Mary and I did, who went to go through some very difficult surgeries as a very young boy, didn't understand. And I wanted to tell him, if you just knew how much I loved you, um, but he couldn't understand at that age. I think the Father in heaven sometimes would say, you can't understand yet, but someday you will, but can you trust me? That's one. Secondly, I turn to a passage here in uh, James chapter five, where it says this, um, and I'm gonna read here so I don't take off my glasses, or put on my glasses, I'll read from the computer here. It says, for examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, and, and then it goes on, it says, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Uh, that in the end, that final chapter, that little red line is not all there is, our suffering. That there's a heaven that awaits and that God has something in store. By the way, one person has said that um, at the end of Job's life, God gives Job double of everything he had prior to his suffering. So all of his animals, God gives him double of those. He gives him double of this. But one thing he doesn't give him double of is what? His, yeah, he gives him the same number of children. Why? And some have said it's an indication that because he still has those children who have passed away 
and they're in heaven awaiting Job, and so he did sort of double, but those children will, will be there with him forever in heaven. And so if you're suffering today, um, trust a father who loves you more than you could ever comprehend and know that uh, someday his tenderness and mercy are going to be on full display. There was a phrase that came to mind, something that years ago when we did the Experiencing God study that's just helped me over the years, and he said, everything that we experience in life, we should make sure that we look at it against the backdrop of Jesus on the cross so that we, we never forget his love for us and what he's done for us, and, and, and we just um, we know that whatever God allows in our, in our lives, it's always in the context of his love. Great way to say it. Yeah. All right, Josiah, it says this. In John chapter 20, Jesus appears to the disciples and his wounds are evident. Will our resurrected bodies still have the physical characteristics and scars as our earthly bodies? Will those born without limbs or eyes be complete in heaven? And if our transfigured bodies will be perfect, why were Jesus' wounds apparent? Thank you for answering. Yeah, great question. I... well, it points us to those who are suffering physically, um, who are longing for that day when everything is made right in our bodies, right? And um, so I guess this is, it brings up a good point that, oh no, what if Jesus' scars mean that I'm gonna take with me my scars and my pain? So it's a great question. I love um, looking at it through um, Matthew 4, 23, this, this idea of Jesus and his kingdom, because heaven is gonna be where Jesus is king and his kingdom rules and every, everything about the kind of kingdom that Jesus would create is apparent in heaven. But we get to see glimpses of that in Jesus's ministry. You see it all over the gospels. I'll point to one of them in Matthew 4, 23. It says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, and this was right away in his ministry. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. It's like in the same phrase. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and he's healing every sickness and disease. It's just, it's, it's, and it says later in scripture, that's the evidence of the kingdom is Jesus uh, making people whole and physically healed and demons being um, delivered from them. And so this idea of the wholeness and completeness that we will receive in our bodies in heaven is, uh, I think, all over scripture. So then that still begs the question, why did Jesus uh, still have his scars? And I think um, we're not given the clearest of answers. It's probably something that we would speculate on, but I think one really um, good speculation, at least, would be that Jesus' wounds were so important for us to see. You can see it when Thomas needed to touch them. So important for us to see the continuity between the body that died on the cross and then the body that rose from the dead. Uh, that is the center, central to our theology, that it was the same body that conquered death and then rose back up to life. So for all of us believers that really need that as core to our theology, it's a gift that Jesus would maintain those scars in his resurrected body. And so I think Jesus is an exception in that case where he's the one with a few scars that prove that this was the same body they put on the cross, but they couldn't hold him down. And so when he rose up out of the grave, uh, that's just so central. Without that resurrection from the dead, we, um, our faith would be futile, it says in Corinthians. So that's, that's what I think. <laughs> Anything to add? I totally agree with you. I like that. Cool. Um, that's good. Mary, 
question for you here that came in a lot, of, a lot about memories, and this was actually the video as well that someone asked, I'm just gonna read three sort of combined, I think are close. Do we still have memories in heaven, like knowing who we are and who we love? Another question, how we relate to one another. Evan, I imagine it's like, will we know people and friends? Will they still, will we have to reintroduce ourselves? And, and then another one, will I know who my friends and family are in heaven? So, um, so yeah, I want to start by reading Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where John's telling us what he sees in heaven. He says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language. I think that points to the fact that when we're in heaven, we're not going to be like some nameless, faceless kind of, we're going to be who we are, only we better made perfect, the Bible says. There, there will be ethnic diversity. There will be uniqueness of who we are. And, and I think we'll recognize each other. One reason I think that is because, um, Jose, you were just talking about Jesus' resurrected body. You know, we know that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he came back to life, and then that he appeared to a lot of people before he went to heaven in the book of Acts. So, um, so when he appeared to people, he appeared to over 500 people. And they all recognized him except two accounts, one on the Emmaus Road and the others when the women went to the tomb. Those were exceptions. But for the most part, people recognized him. And when he appears to his disciples, he says to them, um, he says, uh, you can see that it's really me. In other words, it's obvious that it's me. The 500 people who saw him recognized who he was. And then one last thought. Um, in Matthew 8, 11, um, we have uh, Matthew 8, 11. We have this verse. Uh, Jesus is talking and he says, I tell you this, many Gentiles will come from all over the world and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. So, so these are real people with names, the same people that they were here on earth. There's Abraham, there's Isaac and Jacob. They're sitting around the table together and I really like this part, they're feasting. They're, they're enjoying each other. It's like a big party, they're talking, there's conversation. So how will we relate to people in heaven? Kind of like we do here only, we'll be without all of our baggage. We'll be at perfect peace with God and with ourselves and with each other. So, so people who talk about heaven being a boring place, I had a, a professor in, uh, college, and she said, oh, I don't want to go to heaven where all those old women are walking around in white tennis shoes. <laughs> that is not what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is going to be just, I mean, you think of God being the author of everything good, and, and it's going to be everything good, laughter and fun and ice cream and all the best stuff. I like the fact that we're going to be the best version of ourselves. Yes that uh, there are things about it, like we're like, sometimes I do this or I say the wrong thing that in heaven we'll never, we'll never have regrets. I'm gonna be so much easier to live with. I'm speechless. <laughs> I, <laughs> be careful. Yeah. yeah, you're amazing to live with today, so. That was a good answer. Yeah. All right, here's a question that came in a number of times. Hi, my question is, what is the difference between Hades which is in Revelation, and a holding place before judgment. Also, maybe it's called purgatory. I'm confused. 
Um, purgatory is not taught in the Bible. If you did a word search, you'll never see that. Uh, it's, it's not, there's not like a holding place where you sort of have to pray a person out of purgatory into their final state of heaven or hell. That being said, there, there are different terms in the Bible like Gehenna, Sheol, Hades, hell. There's, and so there's different terms that refer to this place that nobody really wants to go. And the Hebrew term, which is what the Old Testament is written in, is Sheol. And it's really often just refers to the place of the dead. It can be for righteous people or unrighteous people. And, or, and then Hades is really the New Testament. But more and more it takes on the aspect of Hades is, is the place where we go if we have not put our trust in Christ. And, and ultimately, Hades is... It's not a holding like a purgatory, like we don't know where we're going to go. It means, no, you're in a place apart from Jesus' presence, apart from God's presence. But it says in Revelation chapter 20, the last verse, it says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, which would be like Gehenna, the final place of hell, of, of a place without God's presence. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And, and I just say, say there, uh, is that literal or is it metaphorical? It's really hard to know. Uh, the Bible has a lot of metaphorical or what sometimes called apocalyptic language in Revelation that's symbolic. What we know is it's going to be a place where you don't wanna be. It's gonna be where God's presence has been removed. But Hades, it says, will be thrown into the lake of fire. And, and, and the enemy, the devil and his angels are thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades is sort of the precursor to the final place of hell, just like there's a, an initial state of heaven, but it says the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 will one day come. And so there's sort of this uh, first age of heaven, first age of hell, but at the second um, death or this place, the great white throne judgment it talks about, I wish we had like, we could give a whole message on this, uh, that ultimately Hades, all who are in Hades, will be in this final place of hell, the lake of fire. Um, I feel like whenever we talk about hell, it's, it just is so sobering, and just to glance over it feels, it's uh, to think of that line being not in heaven, but all of eternity in a place without Jesus is very sobering, is why we say we have news to share with people that they can be with in this amazing home in heaven forever. Uh, back to heaven, because that's an easier one, to, uh, one we like to answer more. Um, Josiah, this one right here came in, and, uh, and someone asks about children. When a child dies and goes to heaven, what form is their body in heaven? A child, or do they develop an adult form? Um, wow, that's a question I've had as well, so I'll give that one to you. All right. Well, it's an easy one because we can say, I don't know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, we can look at scripture and know as much as we can. One time I got a markdown on a grade in a college paper at my Bible school because I, he said, you can't just say you don't know. It's true we don't know, but you have to go as far as you possibly can. <laughs> so um, let's not just say we don't know and let's see what we can uncover here. Um, in Isaiah chapter 11, you have an interesting verse. Um, verses six through nine talks about the, it says, the wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. 
So it's this image of heaven, and really it's talking about the peace and harmony of heaven. And so sometimes it's not the best to take a, a poetic um, prophecy like that and take every word literally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we still say we don't quite know for sure if there will be children in heaven. I think if there are children in heaven, they'll probably grow up. Uh, that Randy Alcorn kind of uh, had that idea too, that if there are children in heaven, imagine that childhood, right? Like if you did die on earth and you went to, uh, you, were, you, were re- you were resurrected in a body in the new earth and then you were allowed to grow up on that new earth, how amazing that would be. Um, what we do know though for sure um, is that our resurrect, we know some things about our resurrected bodies. And um, so whether these resurrected bodies are in a child form or a um, ageless form, C.S. Lewis talks about like we won't even be able to understand how old people are because they'll have the innocence of a child so in a moment they might look like a child and then they'll also have the wisdom of people with who knows a billion years of experience someday (laughs) Um, so we'll be kind of ageless is how C.S. Lewis sees it regardless we know um, from 1 Corinthians 15 that um, I gotta pull it up on my notes so I get it right here Um, that our resurrected bodies are gonna be immortal and we won't die again. They'll be powerful, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 24. They'll be powerful, they'll be glorious, and they'll be spiritual. So um, I have a hard time imagining them being babies' bodies if they're these powerful, um, glorious. I think we would, he would allow us to grow up beyond just being an infant, but that's, um, I think that's, that's as far as I could go in trying to figure out that question from Scripture. There's a verse in Corinthians that says, um, <laughs> it's becoming one of my favorite verses, our bodies now disappoint us. Mm-hmm. In that day, our bodies will no longer disappoint us. Amen. Yeah. Am I gonna be bald in heaven? I don't know. Maybe you will be bald, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna, there's a, number, a lot of questions Glory coming. might shine on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By the way, if you're a young adult, ages 18 to 30, is that right? Yep. You want to come to young adults. So Zai is the one who leads that ministry. And don't you want to just hear more of what he has to say? I wish, can I, can I sneak in the back? Mm, I don't know. Totally. We'll talk about I'll have later. you up on stage someday. <laughs> hey, a lot of questions have been coming in here. And I just want to say, feel free to answer. Maybe, Mary, I can give you one. There's two questions that relay. One says, if there is one God and one heaven, where are all the non-believers going who are dying in India? And another question that sort of relates to that um, is, uh, my question is that typically people grow, up with, uh, people grow up with the religion based on their location. So we're living in the United States, more exposed to Christianity, the lucky ones. What about the people and children born to other religions and other places throughout the world? Are they just in trouble unless missionaries reach them what makes my trust in God and Christianity the right one? So basically, what happens to people in other places who don't grow up with quite the opportunity that we have? Yeah, so, um, so here in the States, most of the history that we have is written by European people, historians of European origin. And so we end up with a very Eurocentric kind of a history, and we end up with um, illustrations of Jesus with... Um, sometimes even with like lighter hair, lighter skin, sometimes blue eyes. The disciples we see all with skin that looks more like mine, which that's really not historically accurate. If you look at the history, 
of Christianity, you see that the continent of Africa, Christianity came to the continent of Africa in the first century. And, and even like today, sub-Saharan Africa, statistics show that 60% of people in sub-Saharan Africa identify as Christians. Um, if you look at the Middle East, that's obviously the cradle of Christianity, you know, where Christianity was birthed. Even today, the, or within the last couple of years, the statistics that I saw, the Iranian church is the fastest growing church on the globe right now. In India, there's evidence that Christianity was, it was in India at least by the third century, probably sooner. Um, Some would say Thomas. Thomas, yeah, was the one who... Thomas is such mm-hmm. a popular name in India because the... Apostle Thomas, did he actually take the gospel to India in the first century? But Right. So, so followers of Jesus are really way more global. It's not a North American religion that's being exported to other parts of the world. There are so many believers around the globe um, from centuries past, too. And then the second part of the question, oh, you uh, were going to say. Yeah, I was going to say, the other indication we have is that in the scriptures, when someone responds to the to either the light of general revelation, which is like the, the heavens pour forth speech, Psalm 19, uh, other places, that when we, Romans chapter one says that, that the invisible qualities of God are seen in nature. When we respond to the truth that we have, even in general revelation, like, wow, there must be a creator, that God can send somebody, and we see evidence of that in two places in the book of Acts, that in Acts chapter eight with the, this royal official, this government official from Ethiopia is on his way back, and he's, he's responding to the truth that he has. Uh, and God sends Philip miraculously to him. And then two chapters later, uh, Cornelius, who's a Roman officer in Acts chapter 10, that he also is, says he was a God-fearing man, but he didn't have the news about Jesus. And so God wakes up Peter in a dream and sends Peter to Cornelius. And so we can even say today, is it possible that, and I believe it really is, that God sends people, he sends things on the internet, TV, he can send an angel. Uh, we hear a lot of people who experience God in dreams, and they say, especially Muslims around the world, that they say, I had a dream and I saw this man dressed in white and he was glowing, and, and you're like, wow, that was Jesus coming to you. So there's evidence in the scriptures and an experience that, that when God sees someone respond to him, that he can, he can show them the light of the gospel. And there's gonna be a lot of surprises in heaven one day. There's a verse in um, Genesis chapter 18 that I go back to sometimes, uh, Genesis 18, 25, where Abraham is talking to the Lord and he says this, surely will not the judge of all the earth do right. And I come back to that verse sometimes when there are things that I don't understand or mm-hmm. can't wrap my, my mind around. The judge of the earth, surely he will do right. I think we should get the last question to Josiah here. And then we're going to, again, every service we're going to answer different questions because we have so many have come in. So some of these questions we'll answer the next service. But Josiah, it says here, why would God harden someone's heart? This is a question that comes up. Like Pharaoh and Exodus with people like him or even Hitler, do you think God gives them the opportunity to choose him only to a certain point here on earth? And then if he hardens their heart, they have lost their opportunity to be saved. So in terms of, is that fair? Like, what about is heaven, are the doors of heaven locked to these people? Like, is there, where there's no opportunity? But what would you say about hardening of a heart? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And it relates to a few others that have just come in throughout the service, too, about um, if I ask over and over um, to be saved, if I 
if I repent and ask the Lord into my heart over and over, is there any chance that I'm still not in? Um, so somebody's wrestling with a similar question even this morning. Um, and um, so first we wanna, I wanna remind us of um, the promises of salvation, um, that we serve a God who has been pursuing us since he first spoke life into existence. He created this garden for us to live in with him together. It was the intended purpose of creation for us to be with him. And then throughout the whole Old Testament, he's pursuing, pursuing, pursuing people. It's fascinating to even study his pursuit of people outside of Israel. You get Melchizedek, you get Rahab, you get all these people that, um, and then obviously um, sending his son because he so loved the world. It's, we just see this pursuing God that seeks out people and is really knocking on the door and hoping that we open to him. I see that as the posture of our loving father. Um, so if you've accepted Christ as your savior, once you're in, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. If you believe anything in scripture, you gotta believe that. Um, so that's the, that's the heart of our father, I believe. And so knowing that and then seeing scriptures like in um, Exodus where God hardens Pharaoh's heart, in chapters, um, Exodus, there's a reference to chapter four and then seven through nine. Um, it's a fascinating study. You should look into it. If you're the one that asked this question or now if you're curious, look into the times where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then also look into the times where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And there's actually five times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now it's interesting, before Pharaoh ever hardened his heart, God knew he would. Um, kind of see that with Judas too. God knew um, he would, but um, it's interesting that Pharaoh had that choice over and over, and he had the choice with miracles to prove that he should be doing, what, he should be making the other decision. And so we really see, I see the same heart of the same father um, would have would have allowed Pharaoh to um, change his heart if, if Pharaoh wouldn't have solidified his own will so deeply. And then at, it does seem like at some point if somebody digs their feet in so deeply, um, the Lord never overrides our free will. So I don't think that, um, so at that point, yeah, there's a point of no return, but that was all in Pharaoh's own making, I believe. That's great. I think it ties into when people say, have I maybe committed the sin of blasphemy? Where I, mm -hmm. If you have a desire to be close to Jesus or to, to experience his forgiveness and mercy, it means your heart's not been hardened. Yeah, if you're asking right? that question, nope. <laughs> right, the yeah. father, you like the, the prodigal son, he's always ready to welcome us home. Mm -hmm. And if we're nervous about like, am I really in the family? Have I I've asked him to come into my life? I don't really, it's like a child who's been adopted. If they keep on asking their parents, am I, am I really your son? Am I, am I really your son? At some point, the father or mother says, I, trust me, I, I love you. And you're, part, you're as much my child as any of the other. Yes, you're part of the family forever. Amen. What good news we have to celebrate. Amen. And to know that hell does not have to be the end, that Amen. heaven can await for those who trust in Jesus. Uh, we'll answer more of the next service. A few came in about COVID, masks, and all the rest. What, how does that relate to the gospel. We'll, we'll talk about that next service. But Mary, would you pray uh, for us as we close here? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can call you our Father. What an amazing gift that is. And thank you for your word, the way that you communicate your love for us. Lord, thank you that doubts are not the enemy of faith that we all have them, it's just good to ask, it's good to, to look and search and seek. You're not put off by that. You know what we're thinking anyhow. 
So Lord, I pray that you will take us deeper, that you'll give us all, all of us, a hunger for your word, a hunger to know you. Thank you for the promise of heaven and all that that means. Thank you for this church family, and we do pray that you'll pour out your blessing on us as a church family, that you might be glorified. Thank you that we can pray in the name of Jesus. Mm. And so that's what we do. Amen. Amen.